You're listening to the Faith Unpacked Podcast. Welcome back to the Faith Unpacked Podcast with Jason and Jamie. This is episode 239, and today uh, Jason is out and we've got uh, Caleb Leonard back with us. Um, if you didn't get a chance, go back and listen to episode 238, uh, last week's episode, uh, because we began talking about this uh, EFS idea, this uh, idea that centers around the, the role of the father and the son and the relationship between the son, and this idea um, that we've come to understand or maybe have given the sort of passive title uh, eternal subordination, this this idea or this belief that the the son, the eternal son, God, very God, is in submission to the father eternally. And so if you didn't listen to the last episode, definitely go back and listen to it because we covered kind of the the sort of ground floor in brief uh, this is a very big argument, very big discussion, very big topic, as all things Trinity are, uh, but it kind of gives you a, a brief run-through of what what the particular discussion is there. So definitely go back, listen to that, and and you'll, you'll get a sense for where we're going here in this episode, uh, which is the part two of that discussion. So, uh, Caleb, we left off with uh, turning really to where where this idea comes from and why it's really used, I think is is really the the interesting thing. the The idea seems to really come to serve a particular agenda or purpose. And while the actual the actual topic at issue, maybe we should put it that way is a very biblical one and is a very biblically reasoned one, um, this particular application might not be uh, a very good or, or necessarily biblical fit to that discussion. Um, so kind of flush that out for us a little bit. Uh, where did this, why did they come about this idea and for what purpose and, um, and why, you, you know, how, how should we think through that? Yeah, I, I think that there's a there's a right impulse when we're when when we're kind of confronted with the you know cha- changes in culture that would be contrary to to scripture, right? As as Christians that that want to see uh, God's creation thrive, right? That that want to see the the church thrive, marriages thrive, the family you know, thrive and, and they kind of see the, the degrading culture. They, they see kind of gender roles and norms, if I can say that, um, that have historically been just understood um, as far as a kind of a biblical perspective and worldview uh, begin to, uh, at a very rapid pace, uh, begin to unravel. And, and so in lots of... Um, Different categories we're thinking about in theology. We look to well, what what does the Bible you know say about this issue, and then what what is our starting point? 
you know, for all of our theology. And so we, we start with the, the doctrine of, of God, right? So we think about uh, the church even. We're, uh, a good place to start is looking at, well, who has God revealed himself to be? Uh, what what are the divine missions of the Son and the Spirit sent in human history and time to accomplish salvation as they're sent uh, by, by the Father to, to do that? And so those are all really good things to think about. And, and so there's a, a right impulse to say, well, is there something about the inner life of God, who God is in himself? In the last episode, we talked about these eternal relations of origin, right? The, the Father, Son, and Spirit exist eternally. Uh, they're, they're all eternal, right? That there is never a time that the, the Father would was that the the son was not or the spirit was not right the, but that the father eternally uh, generates uh, the son or begets the son and this the spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son you read the Nicene Creed at the end of the last uh, episode and so we get these categories right the, of of what the, what that looks like right the the, the one thing that makes the persons of the Trinity distinct from one another is their relations of origin. So as we said in the last episode, this is where it really comes into that hierarchy of authority and submission, because the proponents of eternal functional subordinationism, EFS, would look at, at the Trinity and say, is there anything that the inner life of God has to say about ordering human relationships as far as authority and in submission goes. And so you jump to the life of Jesus, and you see that he perfectly submits to the will of the Father, right? You have certain passages like husbands submitting to uh, Christ, the, the Father's the head of Christ, even, a passage of Scripture that, that say that, and then Christ's the head of his church, or he's the head of the husband, or he's the head of the, the wife, and so you have kind of this order of, of authority and, and submission. Right. And, and so as we talked about, we have to be careful and think about is this is this scripture is scripture speaking specifically to something that's true of Christ's human nature or it, it, in the incarnation? Or is this something that's eternally true uh, about God? And so that that's really that that impulse is seeing, you know, it's, it's this commitment to uh, complementarianism. Right. That there is a. Uh, distinct roles that men and women play in the home and in the church and uh, somewhat even say uh, in, in society, right? And so there's a, there's kind of a spectrum on the egalitarian to complementarian, right, of men and women, no, no real distinction as far as, you know, gender roles and norms and creation ordinances and things like that. Or you go to the complete other side where you have like male patriarchy, right? But then there's, you know, people that are more uh, a, a little bit away from the fringes, right? The the outliers that are going to land in, you know, different, different spots. But really the impulse was to say, you know, scripture is very clear about what male and female is. It's very clear about who has authority in the home and in the church. And somebody even say in, you know, larger society and, and apply that to all, all kinds of areas and, you know, in life. And, and so really the, the question comes to, 
you know, does scripture actually speak of the inner life of God giving us a hierarchy of authority and submission that then and kind of one for one gives this analogy of what human relationships are supposed to, to look like, right? So if Christ is eternally submitting to the Father, and, and that's, you know, functionally, right, then what does that say about, you know, a a woman, a wife who wants to step out of kind of those norms that, that Scripture gives, right? And it really, it makes a powerful argument, right? If that's true, how are you going to argue with the Trinity? <laughs> it's like, what, what, do you, what are you going to do, right? Or is it that we can get to those same conclusions while still preserving this reality that, that there is not that eternal functional subordination in the life of God, yet what God does reveal, even in the incarnation, right? You don't have to say it's eternally something to have it be meaningful the way that, that Paul does in talking about, you know, the Father being the head of Christ, right, in his, in his human nature, and that the Son learns obedience, right? That is true of the Son of God as he operates through his human nature, right? And so really that's that's kind of the the big question here is like can we get to those same conclusions complementarian convictions based on the text of scripture without saying the inner life of God is this way and so human relationships need to be this way yet being those created in the image of God does the the relations of the persons within the godhead Help us understand uh, human relationships of, of unity uh, and and those, and those type of things, right? So, and, and does the life of Christ in the incarnation help us understand authority and submission? And, and I think yes, but it's just how are we going to connect those dots, you know, for people so it doesn't seem like we're pulling this doctrine out that's that has not historically been taught by the church to accomplish uh, a a good end and goal and purpose, but using kind of the wrong means to, to get there. So then it actually undermines uh, our argument, I think, long term, uh, especially for those who are committed to a more classical view of, of uh, Trinitarianism. So I don't know if that's a kind of a helpful place to start. And then, and then maybe, you know, Jamie, you could, you could help us think about you know, what, what are maybe some passages we can go to that would, you know, teach us about, you know, a complementarian, you know, view without having to, to jump there or, you know, whatever you're, you're thinking besides that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great foundation. And, uh, and it does draw, I think, another thing, another, <laughs> I guess, thread that we could pull in here real quick um, is the understanding of Jesus in relationship to the Father. And and I want to bring that in as well, because some have said, well, Jesus never says that he's equal with the Father, right? And, and I've heard that argument, um, but the problem is it's not true, right? It's, it's yeah, very much yeah. <laughs> not true. And, and that's where um, I, I want to further reinforce and also underscore that we're not saying that people that come from an uh, EF, EFS uh, perspective are saying that, that the Son and the Father are um, different or the Son is somehow. And that's where that word functional uh, becomes 
very important. So we're, you know, because we're not trying to run down um, brothers and sisters in Christ who happen to hold this view or who happen to argue for this view, uh, many of which I have quite a lot of respect for in a lot of ways. Uh, mm -hmm. I would just, we would just argue that they're wrong in this particular yeah. view or they're doing something that um, would be considered unorthodox with the Nicene Creed uh, specifically. Mm -hmm which yeah. does not have any such delineation at all. And I think, you know, if we're going to throw out historic norm, uh, then we need a very, very compelling biblical reason to do so, in my opinion. But yeah. um, but I do want to reinforce part of that belief is the recognition that even Jesus incarnate uh, in flesh he makes very clear that he and the Father are still completely one, that, that there yeah. is no distinction between mm -hmm. them. There is no separation, right? It's not that that Jesus is God-ish um, or he was created by the Father and he's a demigod, right? That he's mm -hmm. he's got God-like attributes, but yeah. he's not actually fully God. And obviously there's, there's tons of examples of that. Um, and you just look at, for example, the, in the book of John, um, you see in the very beginning of the book of John, John 1, 1 through 5, you, you have a clear presentation that the Son and the Father are one, uh, that, that reality. Yeah. And then you see in um, John chapter 5, Jesus himself um, describes himself as one with the Father. Uh, and, and actually, enrages uh, the listeners because they go, wait a minute, he is making himself to be completely divine God, right? Yeah. And then, of course, he makes it even worse. Uh, Jesus doesn't stop there. Um, mm -hmm. In John chapter 8, he declares himself to be Yahweh uh, directly, right? Um, he's the one who is, which is only yeah. the designation for God, very God, right? Nobody else would dare uh, say a thing like that. And certainly Jesus outright says it. And it's like, they don't miss it. Uh, cause again, you know, they try and, uh, yeah. they, they try and deal with him for that. You see the same thing in John chapter 10, same thing in John chapter 17, you know, and, um, and this, this reality doesn't just exist there. You see it all throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, right? Like, uh, for example, Daniel chapter 7, we're invited mm -hmm. into the throne room of God. And who do we find sitting on the throne of God, being worshipped as God? It's not the Father. It's the Son. Yeah. And it's like, wait, hold on. The throne room of God is the place where only God is worshipped. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet here they are worshipping the Son. And, and you see the same thing in Revelations 5 as well. Um, where once again, we're invited back into the throne room of God. And who do we find on the throne of God being worshipped as God? It's the Son, right? And so yeah. all of yeah, Scripture... John, just, just one one right here before I... Yeah. It, it just is your thing. John 17, 5, and it, Jesus' is high priestly prayer, right? And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Right. And so you, you already mentioned several passages in John, but it's this idea of, you know, like from, from glory and, and to glory. Right. And, and so that, that's so, that's so huge. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and so what we don't want to, uh, what, what we don't want to confuse at all is that, you know, and we made this point, um, Caleb spent quite a, quite a bit of time on this point in the last episode, just to clearly make sure you don't come away with any other understanding than the, the father and the son are absolutely one. Uh, they are absolutely the same in identity and nature and character. Uh, all of it, uh, is very much, you know, and, and so, if you walk away with any other view of the Trinity as, oh, three persons means three gods, uh, that's wrong. It's not yeah. three gods. It's one God uh, who is eternally existed in three persons. And the mm-hmm. Father is not superior to the Son. The Son is not superior to the Spirit. The Spirit is not superior to the Father, right? Uh, there, there isn't that um, change in how much godness right <laughs> like it's not yeah. like the father yeah. is a hundred percent god and jesus is 50 percent god and the spirit is 30 percent god or you know whatever the um you get you get my point there um and and that's really important so uh i know we've stressed that point but it's really important so it's worth stressing twice yeah yeah, well, and, and it's and it's helpful to think about the creator-creature distinction, you know, here too, is that even though Jesus being the son, there's some overlap between what it me- means for me to be a son, especially looking at the doctrine of adoption and, and things like that. That's really key, but everything that's true of me as a son, it does not necessarily import itself onto what it means for Jesus to be son, right? And, and the same thing for the father, right? Uh, for for those uh, who have the privilege of, of being fathers, whether that's right now or in the future, what, whatever that is, the, there's something about God being father that human fathers can relate to, right? But there's also things, there are aspects of what it means for God to be father that are also not true of me, right? Because the the uh, the creator is is wholly other, right? He's he's transcendent, and so. There's not just a one-for-one correlation between what it means for me to be son, for me to be father, as it does for God uh, in in the person of the father and the person of the son to be father and son. So there there are true things about that, but they're they're not one-for-one, right? Which which kind of brings us back into this discussion of you know what does it mean for you know gender roles and relationships in the family you know, in the in the church? Is there something true about the inner life of God and how the different uh, persons or members of the Trinity relate to one another? Uh, sure, but how, how does Scripture present uh, what, what that looks like without us kind of importing things that we don't have to, right? To, to maybe um, uh, try to be charitable, um, stretch maybe, uh, things, you know, in, in a direction because of a, a commitment that we have to do something that's biblical, right? So is it right thing, kind of wrong or faulty or incomplete uh, reasoning, right? So it's not necessarily a wrong conclusion to draw from the truth of Scripture about what God has revealed all the way from creation uh, of, of man and woman in the Garden of Eden, right? That's not a wrong conclusion, uh, that, that, that's drawn as far as this theological position and commitment to uh, robust complementarianism. But how, how's that revealed 
you know, through, throughout scripture, what's that look like after the fall? What's that look like after redemption, you know, in, in Christ? What are the apostles teaching us? What does Jesus teach us? Is he, is he going back to that creation, you know, ordinance? Is, is how, how are they teaching us what, what it means to be male and female? What it means to have, uh, authority and submission rightly ordered in the church and in the home? And so, Although it can speak to those things, is that kind of the primary thing, or should we be focusing more on, you know, what has been given to us as, you know, kind of these these positive uh, commands uh, in in scripture, patterns in in scripture that are going to help us to to flourish, and, and that's and that's the point, right? Is not. Um, I'm a man, and so sometimes it can be easy, you know, for for people to say, "Oh, it's easy because you're a man, right?" Just like have people, you know, submit or whatever. And it's like until you learn that leadership means greater service, right? Leadership means accepting responsibility for other people. Uh, Leadership means going into the background so that others can be seen. It, it, It means you know, lifting other people up, right? It, it's it's more it, it's more service, right? It, it's more uh, exposing yourself to to more suffering, uh, to more hardship, right? So that's why that connection, you know, in Ephesians five of lay your life down. Um, a lot of people like to think like, oh yeah, man, I take a bullet for somebody. Yeah, that's one decision, right? In your, in your life, right? You probably would, right? But what, what does that actually look like to lay down on a daily basis, like my preferences, um, my hobbies, my, my sleep, right? Uh, my, my advancement in like a, a, in a company, right? Or a ministry opportunity. Uh, what does that look like uh, to do things that nobody else sees? And then to be critiqued for the very few things that they, that, that they do see or that they do experience, right? Uh, and so all, all of that is not to say that, you know, like men have it harder than women or, or women have it harder than men, right? It's, it's different, right? My wife stays home with our kids, right? She has, I, she has a way harder job than I do as a pastor in a lot of ways, right? And so the thing is, like, we both go to work every day. We both have very different contexts, right? We both have to genuinely uh, give ourselves to our kids and, and to the to the ministry, right? But we do that in different and complementary ways, right? And so we see the, the different members of the Trinity. Um, the Bible appropriates certain acts, um, even in the the one act of salvation, right? To certain persons, the Father sends the Son. The Son dies on the cross. The Spirit applies salvation, right? But they work inseparably you know, to do that. And, you know, we, we see this call of husbands to submit to Christ, right? Wives to submit to, to husbands, right? Children to submit to their parents. So nobody is outside of any, any authority whatsoever, right? Same thing for churches. Pastors are under the uh, over-shepherd who is Christ, right? It's not their church, Right, they're under shepherds of of Christ Church, and hopefully you have a plurality of elders. Right, we're both Baptists, and I think committed to that. And so there's also a mutual submission um, 
amongst fellow brothers who are leading a church and a congregation too. So, and, and just that willing submission, right? I, I think that there's there's a respect, there's a love, and that submission comes easier when that's uh, when there's a healthy uh, respect and love and, and care for for one another, right? Because if a man is treating his wife and interacting in the church the way that he should, uh, his his woman should want to submit to that, right? If he's not, then that's going to be really difficult, right? And 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 if a wife that likewise is is not loving and respecting and, and submitting in those ways, you're not living with each other in understanding ways, and you know actually having genuine conversations and dialogue about things, being approachable is is huge. Then that's going to be really that's going to be really difficult. That that's going to be a huge challenge, right? So I think you go back to kind of the unity, right, within within the, the Trinity, and and talk about that that is is being something that the church should reflect that, right? As as the people of, of God, they should reflect the unity of, of the God that they serve. And I think that's true in the in the home as well. And so you can see there's a lot of overlap here. I think we're wanting to get to the same place of a robust complementarianism where uh, man and woman can thrive in, in, in the ways that God has designed them to, to do. And it's a really freeing thing, right? But it's how are we how are we going to get there? And are we kind of hijacking some things uh, and, and maybe you know stretching some other things you know to get there? Yeah, it's a great point, and and I think it falls into you know that greater risk we have more in general, um, which we, you know the the term we use a lot is we call it proof texting, right? Where I go looking for yeah. a concept that fits the the narrative I already want to form. And mm-hmm. like Caleb said earlier, you know, the in this case, it, it's a godly pursuit in the sense that they really do want to uphold something that is good and God designed, God ordered, right? The the natural design for men and women was not a product of the fall. I know we have some egalitarian friends that run around saying that. Um, Genesis 3 destroyed the picture of God. And it's like, well, first of all, no, <laughs> because um, like yeah. the the misuse of Genesis 3.16 specifically, where God says to the woman, your desire is for your husband. Uh, they go, oh, see, she just wants relationship and sin messed that up, you know, and you go, well, hold on. First mm-hmm. of all, um, that that particular Hebrew word for desire is not a good word. Uh, it's a word that's only used in as a referent for sin, you know, similar to like in Genesis chapter four, where God says to Cain, uh, sin's desire is for you. Right. And and you must overcome it, um, which, of course, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a very sad, very sad story creates a lineage of not walking with Yahweh. Right. Um, but uh, similar, similar sort of thing there. But the, the bigger point, as Caleb was making there, is use, use the language the Bible uses in relationship to these things. You know, you have, um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul actually appeals fully to God's original design. This is Genesis 1 and 2, right? We're talking before Genesis 3. This is before the yeah. fall. 
this was God's good design. And then you see a similar comment uh, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he says that this is true for all the churches of Christ. Meaning this, this wasn't just, oh, that church that, um, that Paul's writing to in 1 Timothy, that church had issues, right? But outside <laughs> yeah. of that, then there's no problem. And it's like, well, Paul really shoots that argument in the foot um, when, when he makes clear that this is God's good design and it's good for everyone. And it's good for every church. And I, I, I love the way mm-hmm. you presented that, that, you know, this idea of submission is not a bad thing. And it's not a domineering thing that men aren't called to just control, uh, women. In fact, when you look at, you know, that mutual submission that you see in Ephesians chapter five is, um, the husband has greater burden in a sense, uh, for, you know, loving his wife, serving his wife, literally dying for his wife, right? Because he says, husbands, love your wife yeah. as Christ did for the church. And so you have to stop and ask the question, how did Christ, um, how did Christ love the church? Well, he died, right? So it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> uh, which has yeah. any number of actual applications, like you pointed out, right? It's a dying to self. It's a dying to desires, my own desires, right? I want to, uh, I, I want to fulfill my desires. And God says, no, uh, your desire is to die to that for the good of your wife, for the good of your kids, you know, for, um, and I think even more importantly, you know, you, you, you talked about first, uh, first Peter chapter, um, three, seven is that also comes with a warning to the husband, right? If you fail to do these things, if you fail to honor your wife, if you fail to live with her in an understanding way, if you fail, uh, to love her, then even your prayers are hindered before the Lord. And that's a pretty serious thing. And then, yeah, I love the the other point you, you pointed out, which is submission is a holy Christian idea in the sense that we are called yeah. to, to submit in any number of ways, right? Uh, we're called to submit to the elders of the church. We're called to submit to the government, so long as it's not asking us to do, you know, what is against God's... Um, God's holiness itself. Um, and we are called in, in so many different forms, in so many different ways, uh, for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And so there is something uniquely yeah. beautiful in uh, Christian submission at every level that is so unique uh, and very much dependent on the very uh, character and nature of God that we serve. Um, In that, you know, God is beautiful and God's design, both in salvation and sanctification, is that God's glory be on display, ultimately. And so when a church is living out God's good design, when a marriage is living out God's good design, when um, elders are living out God's good design, when we're all seeking Christ, right? as the shepherd of the church, as the head of the church, um, that's beautiful. And, and it looks radically different, right? Uh, that takes us back to mm-hmm. Philippians chapter 2, right? Have this, have this same mind, which is that we have one yeah. goal, right? We have one heart. We have one charge, one aim, and that's uh, to, to live 
in Christ-like unity for the glory of God so that, as we're told later on in the chapter, uh, we can be a light in a crooked and, and perverse generation. Boy, that we can relate to that, right? Uh, yeah. Where we shine like stars in the universe, holding forth uh, the, this glorious truth, right? The, the glory of God, the, the uh, amazing gospel of this awesome triune God uh, and that's something that the world really needs. And so, yeah, we don't we don't need to force fit a narrative uh, that the Bible has given us an incredible one already. And so yeah. we use the language the Bible uses and we don't try and strengthen it as if the Bible needs us to make its argument stronger. Because he, here's the reality of it. Complementarian is not a difficult concept. Like, it's not hard for anybody to grasp. It's really simple in one sense. Yeah. Hard to do, yeah. simple to understand. Hard to do, we would argue, yeah. Yeah. you know, we, we would definitely argue apart from Christ, we cannot do it, right? Apart from mm-hmm. God's good work in us and the power of God working in us, uh, we cannot do it uh, because my sinful flesh, I want to be the point. I want to be served. I want, you know, I want it all about me. Uh, it's the gospel of me. Yeah, yeah. And and so apart from God, we cannot do it. Um, but that but that's really the reality of it, right? Like, it's not that it needs further explanation that that what the Bible offers is insufficient. It's um, we just have to we just have to go. Am I willing to yield my will to God, or am I not? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's, uh, you know, we're probably getting close to the, close to the end here. And, you know, maybe something, you know, that I would want to say to you is that, you know, a, a lot for a lot of people, whether it's been to, you know, been in a seminary or a church context, this, this is maybe one of, uh, if, Depends on where you're at, but I, I would say it's maybe become the more common um, way of, of teaching uh, kind of complementarianism in, in the church and in a lot of circles. And you know, as, as someone who's committed to a more classical, you know, view of, of the Trinity and what it means for Christ to learn obedience and submit to the Father, and you know, we've covered all of that. But I would just want to say you know, to, to those out there that are thinking about these things, that that there's room for, for growth and discipleship. And, you know, there, there's a time to call out wrong beliefs and, and heresy and, and, and things like that. But there's also a time to realize that, you know, people are learning, they're, they're growing. Um, there was a time when I never even knew what a creed was, right? I, there was a time when I... I knew that the Trinity was something I was supposed to believe, right? But I, I didn't understand anything past that it was on a, a statement of faith piece of paper that was the church used to, you know, for we didn't even have membership. It was just this is what we <laughs> believe somebody asks, you know, it's kind of key tenets of the faith or whatever, you know. So I, I was there, you know. I I was, um, you know, when I was taught the Trinity, I was I was taught. Um, EFS before I was taught um, the classical view of, of the Trinity, you know, um, and 
you know, thankfully I, I had other wise pastors and professors and things that pointed me in a in a different direction, whether that was through, uh, you know, reading or, or even if they held that view, would at least teach, you know, the, the classical view and then kind of argue for their point and, you know, different things like that. So I'm really grateful for, you know, the men in my life that helped me to consider certain things in a way that was gentle, uh, in a way that was charitable, in a way that, that didn't just, uh, say, remove me from, you know, teaching classes or remove me from, you know, uh, or put me on kind of like a naughty list of like, oh, I can't associate with this guy or, he's, uh, or hey, this is, uh, you know, everything else he ever said is garbage. <laughs> and, and, and to just, you know, let me think, you know, hey, I've got to do some reading, you know, I, I need to have some some humility, you know, and, and I need to have you know, a, a graciousness, a kindness, a, a gentleness with with others in, in this area. You know, I want to be strong on my convictions. I want to show people from from Scripture and from church history. I want them to have good theology that's based on Scripture, that's in line with, you know, interpretation from the past, as long as it accords with what Scripture teaches. And that's why I think creeds are important. I think that we look at those things, and and I would say that I, I mean historically, we'd say this this represents right what Scripture teaches in a in a very easy, clear, you know, summative form. And so, I, I would just want to say that I think that I'm not I'm not old <laughs> by by any means, but but I feel like even you know just over the course of my short life um, that I I, I want to be a gentle and charitable person. Well, at the same time, I, I want to challenge people, you know, to, to think biblically, but I also want to run alongside them and not discount them or throw them under the bus or to, you know, quickly condemn something that could be a discipleship issue, I guess is kind of, you know, what I'm, what I'm aiming at here. So, you know, if, if there's like, if there's a pastor listening, if there's a small group leader that's listening or just someone who reads the Bible with a friend, you know, during, during the week at a coffee shop or whatever, I, I want you to, you know, think, think about that, right? There was a time when you didn't know certain things that, that you know now. There was a time when you were asking these questions and, and what, what would you wish you had had that would have been really beneficial? Right for you, for you in those in those moments, and so it's it's not to say that like oh just kind of be you know whatever nonchalant about doctrine and what people think, but at the same time, am I also considering that before I just go scorched earth? Right. <laughs> so I think that's the I, I and I'm I'm preaching to myself. Right. I have to I have to constantly pray for uh, pray for that type of attitude. Right. I want to be intentional. I want to be serious doctrinally i want to be robust in my arguments but i also want people to when they're around me to know that he's charitable he's gentle he's approachable and in any type of thing like this that we're having kind of a you know intramural debate on something that's the kind of posture we have to have no matter how strong our our views are on things because there's so much that we do agree on and we need all the allies that we can possibly have in, in this world uh, to preach the gospel, uh, see the nations converted, the people out of every nation converted, right? 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Unpacked podcast. We're so thankful for your time. We hope and pray that these encourage your faith and walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can find them on our website at faithunpacked.com. We'd also invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting site. If you have any questions, feel free to hit us up on social media, or you can send us an email at faithunpacked at gmail.com. And we invite you back next time as we continue to unpack our faith together.